Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 80 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and what matters on this instalment of the show is, funnily enough, the clues in the title, the state of the game. In a recent Golf Digest story, Scottish writer John Huggan took a hard and critical look at the state of Scottish golf, with just one professional player in the top 100 of the world rankings and golf club memberships declining as they are in many parts of the world. Golf in the nation where the game was born is having its difficulties at all levels. The story drew in a surprising amount of criticism, Huggin being accused of talking the game down, being negative towards golf, and that is among a bunch of issues that we will explore today. Now, we're without Jeff Shackelford for this episode as he has some TV commitments, but we will be joined by a man who was quoted in Huggin's piece and whose thoughts really grabbed at my attention, former Ryder Cupper and European Tour player. Andrew Coltart. Just before we bring Andrew into the conversation, let me introduce my regular co-host, one of the game's great voices of reason, architect, columnist and commentator Mike Clayton. Clayton, always look forward to catching up with you. Today's chat should be a good one. Thank you, Rod. Yeah, Andrew and I go back a long way, so it'll be interesting to catch up with what he's been doing and State of the game over there. Yes, indeed, and uh, and everywhere else. Uh, you've mentioned the magic name, the third most important member of today's panel. He played against Tiger Woods in the singles of the 1999 Ryder Cup at Brookline, was a two-time winner on the European Tour, as well as a two-time winner of our own Australian PGA Championship. He spends his time these days doing commentary for Sky Sports and running golf adventure tours out of Scotland. Andrew Coltart, great to have you along, and we're looking forward to the chat today, my friend. Thanks very much, Rod. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Yeah, good to good to join you and uh, and Clates. Not uh, not supporting Clates for a while, and just uh, a pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm sure you've had more than one interesting chat with Clates. Now, just before we get started, I distinctly recall being there when you won the 1997 Australian PGA at the New South Wales Golf Club. Clates, does anything about that 1997 tournament stand out in your mind that you recall? Oh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. It was 21 <laughs> years ago. It was 21 years ago, and I. I did fall on my ball, yeah. What was – I remember um, Andrew won in 1994, right, yep. at New South Wales. And we'd both played the World Cup at Puerto Rico, correct? That's correct, yeah. And I didn't play. I thought it was such a ridiculous flight. I thought, oh, no, I'm going to take the week off. And he flew all the way from Puerto Rico and won the Australian PGA, which is – the about the worst fight in the world, I would think, going from <laughs> going from all going from that side of, of the United States all the way to Australia, and then to win the World Cup, to win the Australian PGA New South Wales. Having never seen the golf course, I thought was pretty impressive. Uh, well, what you've done oh. there, Clates, is classic deflection. We're not talking about the 1994 PGA. I'm going to yes, put. A- <laughs> I fell on my ball in 1997. <laughs> yes, I did. I'll put. Sadly, I will I'm, put a link in the show yeah, notes to I, that. How many? How many hits has that now got on YouTube, Jimmy? Oh, it's just. <laughs> not well. Yeah, if I had a dollar for every one, I wouldn't be worth it. <laughs> um, the the crazy thing is, from from January the first next year. That'll be no penalty. No penalty. It'll, but it'll still be hilarious, no Clarence. That's the thing. No, nobody laughs at the penalty. Everyone else just laughs at what happened. Yeah. It's. Uh, I see the RNA have banned green books today. That they should introduce a penalty for stupidity. <laughs> it would have been more than the one Class shot you ended that up. Is the level of That's right. anything is. Anything remotely as stupid as this incurs a one-shot penalty for no other reason than it deserves it. Uh, dear idea. It's been one of the sources of great entertainment. Just your reaction there, Andrew, is exactly – and every six months it gets recycled. Somebody who's never seen it stumbles across it and tweets it, and the whole thing starts again. I'm sorry, Clay. I hate to do it to you, but um, – no, That's right, mate. 
it, it just when I when I knew we were having Andrew on, I thought, wasn't that the same year? Anyway, let's talk about some more serious matters. First things first, uh, Clates, we awoke. You just told me I didn't have a chance to read the headlines. Some bad news about Jared Lyle, which is awfully sad. So thoughts with uh, with Bjorn and his family. I think did you say uh, Clates that she's written that he's going to go into palliative care and he stopped treatment, which is he incredibly has, yeah, sad. So he's they're taking him home, which is not a good outcome by the sound of it no. well no it's not a good outcome so he's had a rough go of it really it's been a it, long it really he was when he had it when he was a kid then he he just finished fourth at Riviera early in the season it was his he come off the nationwide with a web.com tour and he was he was looked like he'd pretty much well fourth early in the season he was he was finally going to make the top 125 and establish himself over there and he was diagnosed again Pretty much the week after, I think. I think he was he was feeling crook, and uh, Robert Allenby was down there. He said you should go and get, go and see the doctor, and that was the second time. And then he beat that one, and then three times. Just, no one deserves that. No, that just deck awful. of cards. And we would hope uh, that the golf family comes together and uh, and helps the family through. I think you know financially those things are never easy, and I know Jared hasn't played for quite some time. So let's hope they all come together. Uh, and do that. And were you just saying, Clades, they've also banned green reading books today? Did I hear that? Because I missed that headline as well. So that wasn't completely unexpected, but glad to see that outcome. Yeah, they've, they're still they're fiddling while Rome burns. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, I don't think they've actually banned it yet, Clades, have they? Well, they're going to. Well, they're going to ban... I, I saw the drawing of what's going to be not acceptable. So yeah, I'm assuming they're banning them from next year, are they, or something, or...? Yeah, I was still kind of making it up as they go as they go along. I don't think it's completely cut off at the moment. There's going to be I don't know whether the caddy is going to be allowed to you or not. The play anyway. At the minute, it's the USGA and RNA. They've not they've not banned it, but they are introducing measures to dilute its its presence and effect in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they banned the compass, so that's the important thing. That's that's one major yeah. issue taken care of there. You can't use a compass on the greens with the green book. So yeah. that's um, well, they should ban this thing. They should burn it. It's just a waste yeah, of time. It, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. funny. We've already just touched on something almost accidentally. Is it a generational thing, Andrew? Because, you know, I talk to yourself and Clates and I think and everybody who's sort of grown up in our kind of generation can't believe that the green reading books weren't banned five years ago or that they were ever allowed to get to this stage. Very different take from a lot of younger golfers, isn't there, uh, about this sort of stuff? Has there been a change in culture, do you think, amongst players and their approach to the game? Well, I, th- I think youngsters now um, – a lot more aware of what goes on in all other kinds of sports, Rod. And, uh, you know, if they can shave a quarter of a shot off, half a shot off, if any kind of advantage that they can get over their players, their fellow competitors, I, I think I think they'll try and take that on board. And, of course, here was this green reading idea that, that came along. And, and in many instances, they thought it was actually going to be a benefit. I actually personally, I think it's been a hindrance to a lot of them, but they thought it was going to be a benefit. They, was, they thought it was going to shave strokes off their, off their round. And in doing so, they, you know, they jumped on the bandwagon like every other sheep that, that did it and, uh, and stuck one in their back pocket. Yeah, indeed. Which also points to sort of a bigger uh, picture as well, doesn't it? As more and more money's entered the game at the top levels and it's become more and more competitive, the hunt for those little quarter shot saving per round um, sort of devices, I would think you see things on the driving range in this day and age, Andrew, that you would never have seen 20 years ago when you played the game. Just the technology, apart from the trackmans and the just oh, the gadgets yeah. and the you know that 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 pressure that players are putting on themselves to you know strive at these 
bloody quotes you see, all these inspirational quotes about getting better every day and all this sort of nonsense. Well, you didn't use to be yeah, like that, did it? Is that, the is that healthy? The, the psychology. <laughs> no, I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's healthy at a golf event. I don't think it's healthy when you're trying to win a tournament. I think uh, some of these devices have a place, but not at a golf event. I mean, I don't think that has changed even way back in the dark ages when Clates was playing. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I think... You know, I think he would say the same thing. Uh, the old line um, is still true to this day. If it's not in your suitcase when you packed your bag, you're not going to find it when when you turn up there. And and that that would have been true uh, when Jimmy and I were playing. And it, and it, to me, I think it's still true now. You, you definitely cannot find it on the driving range at a golf event. But tell you what, that won't be the thread or the line that you'll hear from your coaches or your psychologists or your swing technicians or your biomechanic coaches or whoever else that, that's there trying to... Um, Make you make you feel good. Yeah, and, and and claim their percentage along the way. Not that that's always just the motivator, but uh, there's certainly a case. Clates, you, I'm, I'd never heard that saying before. If you didn't, if it's not in your suitcase when you leave, you're not going to find it. What's your? T- you play with a lot of good young players down there in Melbourne. Obviously, I know you spent a lot of time playing with Todd Sinnott and Suo and others that have uh, that are going on to sort of professional success. Do you see much difference in the way they go about it to the way you did? And what are the good things about the way they do it today? And what are some of the things that perhaps they do that don't help? Well, we, I've gone out and played with Sue and told her she's not allowed to use a rangefinder, which I think helps a little bit. Um, I mean, they don't do anything much different than we do. They, I mean, she saw a sports psychologist for a bit. I don't think it helped at all because how can you help someone who's got a great mind for it anyway? And if you've got a lousy mind for it, can they help? I mean, they they, they never did me any good, so I'm not sure they're any good. <laughs> did you ever I, see a sports sure psychologist, any... Clay? Seriously, did you? Well, I, did. I did. Well, I did, and I'm not sure they're good at either end. You know, if, if you've got a good mind, yeah, you don't need it. And if you've got a bad mind, you can't. There's not much you're doing to fix it. Right. So, um, I mean, for me, and I'm not sure if you've seen Peter Thompson's why they reprinted the the book that they did with him and. All you need to know about sports psychology and golf psychology is in that book there. It's a simple approach that, I mean, perhaps it's more complicated on making it, but he thought very logically and simply. Yeah. That, that sports that psychologist know. that you went to see, is he now in therapy himself, Clates? Did you? Uh, yeah, he ought to be. Delving into that line wouldn't have been uh, a whole lot of fun. We've sort of got off track uh, early, which is my fault. Apologies for that. But uh, it's an intriguing topic because the game has definitely changed, hasn't it, Clay? The, the way players go about it has definitely changed. Just the idea of teams, having a team around you. And every young player has a team around them if they've got any potential, don't they? There's three or four or five people who are a part of the juggernaut that's trying to get to the top of world golf. So uh, it's certainly different yeah. that way. It's 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 not and, if, and if Peter Thompson was here, he would tell you that he, he would give them much less credit than they than they're given because they haven't done it with their own minds. And he was he was huge on working it out for yourself and knowing yourself and understanding yourself and not just doing what you're told to do by other people. And I think that there's so much in that there is you know expecting other people to tell you how to play and what to do and running back to your coach every time you hit a bad shot is not conducive to learning how to play the game properly because they sure can't help you when you stand on the fifteenth tee of the Open championship yep. trying to win, yeah. you know, you, yep. you, which again, not to hark on Thompson, but I'm going to was that, that was one of his bit great bit of, bits of advice to any Baker Finch was go out to the 15th tee and learn how to par the last four holes because one day you're going to have to do it in something important, and 
no matter what you you know what what you do, you've got to be able to get the ball on the fairway and get it on the green, and 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 get it into the hole. Then yeah, they can't hold your hand out there. The, the simplicity and wisdom of that statement, Andrew, is brilliant, isn't it? That that is true genius. Go to the fifteenth tee in the practice round and learn to par the fa- last four holes, and just keep doing those last four until you've learned to par the last four. It's brilliant, isn't it, from yeah. Thompson? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's simple, isn't it? It's yeah. just, just, just in effect, like the essence of of, of his book, which uh, I've not had the, the pleasure of reading, but certainly through the uh, the platform of Twitter, uh, you know, fellow tour pros throughout the world who, you know, who lauded um, Peter Thompson, you know, highlighted quotes uh, from his book, and 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 they were incredibly simple, but but so so true to life. Um, you know, I guess in effect, what he was saying was, instead of going to practice, you know, actually practice something under pressure. You know, something that, to be fair, you are trying to see some of these kids doing nowadays, where they put themselves actually in the position. You know, he's he he was way be, you know way before his time, uh, an absolute golfing genius, and uh, and he certainly knew how to get the job done with uh, without this melee of of troops all round about you, as you said, Rod, quite rightly, uh, making sure they got their piece of the pie. Yeah. Yeah, well, the pie's so big now, isn't it? It's bound to attract others in who want to want to grab yeah, a yeah, uh, a yeah, others. And how do you know? How do you know they're qualified? You know what is a qualification? Yeah, yeah indeed. Well, if they've had yeah. success, this is the other thing that we see, isn't it? If somebody who doesn't play but has success with a player, and be it a sports psychologist or a nutritionist or a fitness, if they have success with one player, you watch the other players flock to them. Um, oh, absolutely, it's, yeah. absolutely. Which I think you've said it a couple of times. Was it the Ogilvy line? Everybody tries to copy the best player in the world, but the best player in the co- world never copies anybody. They do it their own yeah. way, and there's a yeah. prescient lesson in that uh, yeah, as well. In, in fact, so, sorry, Tom had a great line about. He said, "I'd been playing golf for two or three years before I ever saw a good player, and by then I was on the pat on the right track. I'd worked out how to get the ball on the fairway and and, <laughs> and how to get it on the green." So. Nothing after that sort of bumped me off my path, and it was that was that was an interesting take on. Mm. Plus, of course, no better example of going out and paring from the fifteenth in for it was Francesco Molinari. I mean, you couldn't have played those four holes no. better than he did. Yeah, what a per- yep. what a performance. We might yeah. come to that. Yeah. This this goes directly to what uh, you've just said there, Clades, and comes to what I wanted to talk about today. In that piece that John Huggin wrote, um, Andrew Coltart was quoting. I'm going to read your quote back to you, uh, Andrew. I hope Huggy hasn't misquoted you. I'm sure he has not. He's saying that. Uh, no, he, no, he didn't. No. Scottish golf does not exist to provide the world with European tour players. It is, it is not the job of any amateur body to fill the pro ranks, but it is in their interests to develop talent. And if it does, that is a happy consequence. All too often, we have coached the playing of the game out of lads with talent. Rather than understanding their own games, they spend far too much time on the range worrying about the swing. Jordan Spieth is a great example of someone who knows how to play more than swing. In Scotland, Dustin Johnson's left wrist position at the top would have been coached out of him. Today, he'd be off winning a club championship somewhere. I reckon you could swap Scotland for Australia in that <laughs> in that little sort of thing. But that goes directly to what we were just talking about, doesn't it? That That... As the money's increased in golf, all of this peripheral stuff, and, we're, and and champions like Spieth and Thompson have less chance of being able to sprout in the environment of professional golf in the modern era. Uh, yeah, that, that's certainly my belief, Rod. Uh, what um, uh, what seems to happen in an awful lot of instances is that the natural talent, the feel, the flair uh, for golf, which is all, all things that are intrinsic parts of it, get coached out of it while you, you it becomes a conscious effort to swing a golf club. 
um, brought on by people that invariably have never ever been in that position and wouldn't know what it's like coming down the last four holes. They they tell you that you will never achieve something unless you start to swing it this way and that way, despite watching on television on a, on a weekly basis, almost a daily basis now, men and women uh, with swings all over the place making an absolute fortune. So how can you, how, how dare they tell you that you can't do it this way, you can't do it that way, and in effect stifle the talent. And let me tell you another word, the fun and enjoyment uh-huh. out, out of the sport and out of the game, and in effect away from the kids. Yeah, Which, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's a shocking uh, indictment of, uh, of a modern, you know, where modern day coaching has headed off. Yeah. Is, is taking the fun out of it almost perhaps the more damaging aspect? Because when it stops being fun, surely you can't achieve well, your very best, can you? If you don't enjoy what no, you're doing. You've... Of course not. And you're talking about the state of the game and you're talking about the future of membership of your golf club. If, you, if you're going to kill them with coaching and, 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 and coach the fun out of it, then a lot of these kids are not even going to bother playing golf later on in life. And they'll go off, I don't know, doing tennis or cycling or you know, rugby or football or whatever, they're not going to play the game. Yeah. Clates, what's your sort of take on that? You, you, we've got high-performance programs. You know, I think everything that Andrew said in that quote, you could easily transport to Australia. We're on paper having more success at the top end of the game at the professional level uh, with our players, particularly in the men's game, than Scotland is. But what's your thoughts on what he sort of said there? To J- Dustin Johnson's left wrist position would have been coached out of him and he'd be off winning a club championship. Somewhere. That's probably true here too, isn't it? Yeah, you know, a couple of things I'd written down before you read that quote out was I said, Alan, is the number of top 100 players you have a measure of the health of the game? And I'm not sure the two go together. You can have a healthy game with no mm-hmm. great players. They help to bring kids into the sport, but the game can be incredibly healthy with no players in the top 100, or it could be incredibly unhealthy. But I'm not sure that's a measure of health of the game, as Andrew said. But we, we at the Australian Open a couple of years ago, we Andrew, we did a thing with Mark Nicholas, the cricketer. Oh, yeah, no, Mark. You yeah. probably know, yeah. And I asked him the question about academies, cricket academies, and he said they're great for average players, you know, sort of yeah. run-of-the-mill, you know, decent players. So they're terrible for great players with flair because it coaches it right out of them. And as you said, you know, Dustin Johnson, a great example, if Sevy had gone to an academy when he was 17, someone would have told him he had to drive the ball straight and he would have yeah. turned him into a 260-yard bunter down the fairway and he would have just been another player, perhaps. Yeah. You know, I mean, the fact that Sevy was prob- probably never had a lesson apart from his brothers, really, or his uncle. But, you know, no one ever coached the flair out of Sevy. And, that was, and in fact, you could argue that when Sevy lost his game at the end a little bit, that was mm-hmm. probably what happened to him. I'm not quite sure that's true, but... Um, oh, I think it was. Yeah, you know, it was um, Peter Thompson always, he said very early on, that we keep harping on Tomo, he said, Sevy will be in trouble when he learns to speak English. And, and that wasn't true because he played great golf when he was a pretty good English speaker. But he was making the point that someone will get inside his head and start fiddling with that swing and that will really hurt him. And I think that probably happened late in his career. But, but you know, the, the counter argument to that would be that Sevy had a great young man's game that didn't translate well mm. to, to you know to an older player, as opposed to someone like Faldo or Jimenez, or who, whose swings have endured longer because they're perhaps a bit more conventional or whatever. I'm not, not quite sure you'd call Jimenez conventional, but Snead or Sarazen or you know perhaps Sevy just didn't have a game that was built for the long, long term. But 
Either way, I think. Please, what about Sandy Lyle? Well, Sandy was interesting. He had that kind of funky backswing that, I mean, he lost it really quickly, didn't he? You know, uh, it was yeah because um, because he tried to maintain his place at the top of the world rankings and and went to coaches in order to to try and sort of cement his golf swing into place. Yeah, so, so it became could, yeah. so repetitive, and then all of all of a sudden he lost the timing, he lost the confidence. Which once you start eating away at somebody's confidence, my goodness, trying to get a square club face onto a ball and hit it in the direction you want it is one of the hardest things to achieve in life. Well, especially with the power he had, because it went when it was crooked. It was really crooked. Yeah, you know, he didn't exactly have the neck cut in his game, did he? It was just he flushed it, but he could flush it off. You know, when he was playing poorly, he could certainly flush it offline. And Finchie would, you know, Finchie's the most interesting example of that because Finchie had a bad swing, and he went to God. Here we go again. He was going out with Peter's daughter, <laughs> Thompson's daughter. And Finchie hit it with, in, in, in 1980, Finchie hit it with a high wheat cut and a big reverse seat. And Tomo wasn't a teacher at all, but he understood that a high wheat cut was no good. And the opposite of a high wheat cut was a low running draw. And how do you hit a low running draw? Tomo's advice was put it back in your stance and swing it around your ass. And that's what <laughs> Finchie did. And 18 months later, he was leading the Open after three days. And he played some great golf, uh, you know, from the end of, from the middle of 1984, all the way through to when he won, won the Open, and, and probably a year after he was terrific. But in the end, he wow, he couldn't play at all, and, and that was, you know, someone should make a study of what really happened to him because it was, you know, his swing when he was playing terribly was better than the swing he had in 1980, but he, he morphed a bad swing into a good swing. But he then morphed into something that was so far away from what was perhaps natural that he couldn't play at all in the end. Well, well Finchie's interesting. It feels like there's a bunch of rabbit holes here, Andrew, and we're going to end up going down them. Here's one that, we, <laughs> that Clates has just opened up for us here. The thing about Finchie, who is the world's nicest man, Clates, and you've played with him a fair bit in the last couple of years, of course. Uh, a lot, yeah. Uh, outside of tournament golf, he still gets around in extraordinary numbers on a daily basis. But when the. But he's got the. But. but but he doesn't hit the low, low snap hook and the high block, which is the same shot. The club's coming from the same place. Um, he doesn't get the club underneath and inside anymore, so he doesn't hit that shot. I mean, he, he just got the club in a terrible spot on the downswing. And if there was trouble on the left, he would normally hit it, hit it high to the right or he'd duck hook it in there. And if there was trouble on the right, he would normally hit it low and to the left or he would block it out into the, into the lake on the right. So... Yeah, he was just, you know, he, you know, as much as losing his confidence, he lost his competence w w with the driver, and he was done with that. Mm. And competence and confidence go together. But, you know, once you lose the competence, you, I think it's the confidence that goes second. I, I don't think the confidence goes first, then the competence, competence goes. But um, now, there's an interesting relationship, Andrew. Confidence yeah, and competence. Just, yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. I think, I think your confidence goes first. Even when you are competent, but then you do, but you don't realise you're you're still competent. You start to worry about it more. Yeah, I, I saw Peter Senior with the chipping yips, uh, and he'd lost his competence in his ability to get the ball under the green from off the green. Like literally, the simplest shots he would blade or double hit or chunk or so. So his competence went. Then his confidence was very quickly 
within whatever a day or a month had gone, and he remarkably got it back by chipping cross-handed and regaining his competence. So once his competence returned, his confidence came back, and he played. <laughs> you know, Peter played great golf for a long time, but there was a there was a window at the end of 1984 when he was going to give up. He couldn't get the ball in the green from anywhere. You know, he was that close to going. I can't do this anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, like I said, I, I still think your your um, confidence goes in. I think your confidence um, influences your competence. Is is that true of good players though, Andrew? Because bad players never get the confidence, do they? Because they've never got the competence. So confidence has well, to be a result of competence, doesn't it? You've got to have done it well to know, to think and believe that you can do it well next time. Otherwise, all you've got well, is faith. All, well, it, yeah, but it's all relative, isn't yeah. it? It's all relative to what, what level you are at golf. Yeah. You know, you can still have confidence when you're a 20 handicapper. Yeah, I've met a, uh, met a few of those. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. have. <laughs> you know, uh, you're, you're not going to be any good and, and you're probably not going to be that competent. But uh, but you're gonna, you, might, you might one day hit a couple of shots. You think, oh, geez, that was, that was quite good. I'm feeling... Or I'm, or I'm really looking forward to it. It's because I've, I've had a good week at work and I'm feeling quite confident. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you, well, you, well, not all of a sudden because you couldn't do it in the first place. But uh, it, yeah, it's a bit of a chicken and egg type type thing. That is for sure. It's a classic golf conundrum, isn't it? The the confidence you know, versus golf is a conundrum, right? Isn't it? Yeah, well, it absolutely is. It's a, it's a, it's quite remarkable. Let's get back to what we sort of originally came together to talk about, and the rabbit holes are the joy of state of the game because we happily go down them and we find all sorts of nuggets. Uh, when we do. Back to Huggy's piece. So uh, I thought you made yeah, some no. really good points in there, Andrew, and, and the notion that it's not the job of the amateur bodies to fill the professional ranks with players. What should that relationship be? The USGA and the RNA obviously are the, the governing, governing bodies of the game. We've seen, it feels like the last decade or so, they've really struggled to kind of try and ho- find and hold their place in the game, be it with rules, be it with golf course setups, particularly the USGA, though the, the RNA haven't been completely uh, – <clears throat> I mean, they've, they've looked better than the USGA with the open setup uh, in recent years. But that relationship between those two, here in Australia, uh, our governing body, Golf Australia, do an awful lot of funding of up-and-coming professional players to the point where they sponsor young rookie professionals who've come through the, the high-level amateur ranks for their first year or two, I think it is, on tour. Clates, they give them they give them money to help them out with travel expenses and whatnot. Well, even more, yeah. Yeah, um, even more than that. I mean, Sue's still on now. I think it's her third year, but probably her last year of it. But yeah, they, they, which is a good thing, I think. And you know, you don't want to give them all the money when they're amateurs and then just abandon them when they're pros and they last a year and they quit. But is that Golf Australia's um, job though, or is it the PGA's job, Clates? I'm not sure. That's a that's a um, that's a very good question, Rod. That's yeah. a very good very good question. I I think at the end of the day, the money. Well, certainly in Scotland. The money for the, for the Scottish uh, golf union is coming from the average members of every golf club, mm-hmm. and they're not they're not get, they're not giving that money so that young kids could, can go off and become professional golfers. And I would say, while the Scottish golf union comes in for ridiculous amounts of flack about about not being able to um, to pr- to produce and provide players, I, I have to question what on earth does the Scottish PGA do? Because they are a professional body, and I can't think of one that's come through there other than Paul Laurie in about 1986. Hmm. The, the PGA's well, day... Well, sorry, Clayton. Isn't that just cheap labour for pro shops? <laughs> 
I came out. That came out. Of your you had my points. If there's a nerd that's exposed anywhere, Andrew, you can you can trust Clates to go and stomp on it and see what sort of a reaction <laughs> it might get. But in fairness, the PGAs traditionally, certainly here in Australia, I assume Scotland and most others are the same, have never seen their role as a player development. Um, body have they, Andrew? That's not what they see themselves as. They they, they see themselves uh, as a... uh, well. I guess not. They're they're quite happy to sit on the side and and watch an amateur body um, take uh-huh. the flak for for not producing players. But uh, you know, nonetheless, there are um, cert- there are some kind of tournaments um, created by the PGA in Scotland that, to my mind, don't promote those pros any closer to potentially their dream of being European tour professionals or Australasian tour professionals or PGA tour professionals. You know, they, 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 it's just, it's just a, an opportunity to make a little bit of money on the side from the, from the job that, that, uh, that Clates has, has mentioned. Yeah. Mm. Right. So I suppose, well, it all gets pretty interesting, doesn't it? So then what is the role of professional golf? So the PGA... PGAs, they often see their one of their roles quotes, as growing the game because obviously growing the game is in the interests. We, as we know, it's code for growing the business, and the PGA is very much in yeah. the business of golf. Uh, amateur golf bodies aren't technically in the business of golf, even though they've got to survive in that business world, which is why we see uh, a lot of the things happen that we see happen. But growing the business of golf is one of their fundamental sort of tenets. So growing the game is one of their their sort of uh, their notion. So, what is that relationship then between professional golf and amateur golf? How important is professional touring golf as a showpiece of the game to attract new people to the game, uh, or is it is it overrated? What do we do about growing the game or getting more people to play or exposing more people to the game? Which I think is a more realistic sort of way to put that. Well, for me, the most important job of a club pro is to teach the members how to play better golf at every level mm-hmm. to teach the 20 handicapper how to get to 15 and to teach the young kids how to be good players and once good once kids get to a certain level it's up to them to almost to be you know what, what their attitude is going to determine whether they're any good or not and a part of the problem i know with tennis in australia and probably with golf i think you made the point is that there are pros at clubs who teach kids and as soon as they get good they get into the system and the system drags them away from their coach and puts them in with a system coach i'm not sure if that happens in yep. scotland Andrew, but yep. that certainly yep. happened here and, yep. and that you know there have been examples of where that's been a disaster and examples of where it's probably worked but dragging kids away from their i know paul McNamee, the tennis player is a huge critic of taking kids away from their coaches and putting them in the system because systems develop, don't they, Andrew? You can start a system with all the noble intentions, but what systems essentially end up doing is being filled with people who are looking to protect their own position within the system. Yeah, um, yeah, probably. Uh, I, I think uh, what uh, what Clates has, has said there is true. I, 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 it's not my choice. I like to think that in terms of that amateur game, uh, you've got a professional that knows and understands their their kid, whether it's a, a young lad or a young girl, and uh, they they understand how that child um, 
uses the information they're given or absorbs that information that they're given in order to improve. And then you get thrown into the system and, and the, the central coach doesn't pay five minutes time to find out whether you are a, you're somebody that sees things and, and visualises things, somebody that listens to, to, to words or somebody that just feels it through, you know, through going through the motions. They don't take the time to even find that out. They just go, oh, you're doing this wrong, you're doing that wrong, you need to do this. And in, in no time at all, that kid, uh, that kid actually, in, in, in most instances, and in a lot of instances, can come away from there hugely deflated, which is completely the opposite of, of what they should be feeling mm. when, they, when they enter the thing in the first place. Mm. It's a, because it's a, it's a tough enough dream to pursue without any of these things going wrong, isn't it, Andrew? I mean, you, you need all of that talent, skill, plus a little bit of luck to get there, don't you? I mean, there's, there, are no bad, yeah, there are no bad players on any tour in the world, really, are there? No, no, massively. And, and I mean, the funny thing is, you know, if you've been selected, certainly for Scotland, and I imagine the same down there, to attend those things, the first thing you can do is hit a bloody golf ball. Yeah. You don't need help hitting the golf ball. It's all, all the other little attributes that you need, well, a lot of help. And you, st- you, you will still need some help in developing what you have. And it's important how that's developed. But fundamentally, you're there because you can get it around in a good number. Mm. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And it, it it suddenly starts to look a whole lot more complex than it perhaps necessarily is. Should it be, Clates, and I know you're going to agree with this, this is why I'm going to say it, should it not be that the first thing that happens to any kid who gets dragged into a high-performance squad is they get given Peter Thompson's book? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I've given it to a bunch of people who, you know, read this book, you know, this is what golf is. This is how, you, in my mind, this was the greatest mind ever played golf. I mean... He wasn't the best player because Nicholas was better and Hogan was better and Steve was better and he would freely admit that. I mean, he was a he thought Snead was a god, but you know, no one thought more sensibly and more logically about the game than this guy. I mean, you know, if, he, he said to me once, "I wish I could have had more influence on Greg Norman because I think I really could have helped him." Mm. And you know, there was a guy. Wow! I mean, imagine if he could have parred the last four holes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, wow! Boy. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, and, and that's not to be. You know, I always sort of temper my criticism of Greg by the guy won 80 tournaments and he was number one in the world for yeah. 337 weeks or something. So, you know, you know, you've always got to couch any criticism of Greg by he was a hell of a player. He was an amazing player. But, you know, if you'd stuck him on the 15th tee and given him four pars, he would have won more than two majors. So here's a rabbit hole. What if Greg Norman had been in the now? The players at the top of the game exist in a different bubble now to what Norman did. Norman was very much the face of the game and, you know, lots of public was always on television and all the rest of that to front every press conference when he was down here. What if you added social media scrutiny to that, Clates? What might have happened for uh, for Greg, do you think? Well, I think the first thing they would do now is change his golf swing. They would have changed that backswing, that massive wide backswing. Yeah, I mean, that, that would have got coached out of him for sure. I mean, I mean that would have gone the way of Dustin Dunton's left wrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, and, and he wouldn't have been the best driver who ever lived. For, well, certainly he was a well, well, he was yeah, he was a great driver his whole career. But yeah. you know, I mean, I mean, they certainly would have changed that backswing. Mm. What about the rest of it, Andrew? You touched on it there. Is it? Yeah, you only get into the high performance if you can hit a golf ball. And in fact, for the really successful players, I think the golf course ends up becoming the sanctuary, doesn't it? Away from all the nonsense that is the job which is the media and the managers and the, <laughs> the business deals yeah. and all the rest of it. It's changed at the top of the game now, isn't it, with social media, with, which sort of touches back on what we were talking about with Huggy's piece and the criticism that it drew from people. You know, People are free to comment widely now on anything that the, 
<clears throat> that they happen to see. It's a different world at the top of the game in the pressures in that way, isn't it? It's uh, Does yeah, that yeah. require a different skill set beyond just being able to play? Yeah, well, it, I mean, it does because you've got to be able to manipulate uh, the social networks to to your advantage and, and not be not be put in a situation where you can become uh, distracted by them. Uh, you know, there's, you, you can't pay any attention to what anybody says. And, you know, I think it's a great platform to, to thank your sponsors, you know, your supporters, you know, your family, your friends, your, your golf clubs. Uh, when you've played at golf clubs, to go back online and thank the golf clubs you've been allowed to play, talk about the events that you've played in, uh, see how great they were. You know, again, thank the thank the promoters. Hey, guess what? You know, if you start doing things like that, you might even get asked back. Um, but in terms of like asking the general public a question or putting something out there that promotes uh, questions, uh, I would avoid that at all costs. If I was a if I was a young aspiring golfer, I just it, I, I wouldn't put it out there because there's enough sad individuals out there who have no knowledge whatsoever who just who would just say whatever they possibly could to throw a spanner in the works mm. it's uh, how um so, sorry how andrew you know i've read huggy's piece and i think about golf in scotland and of course we played it we played the scottish open and we played the open and you play the famous courses and you think how the hell can golf struggle in scotland when it's the home of the game it's got some of the best courses in the game it's a it's an it's a beautiful place to be outside when the weather's nice i mean how can, how can... <laughs> when's when was that yeah <laughs> it's always great and well yeah. last week it kind of stupid. but i mean how, uh, you know it's it, it's got the open championship every yep. couple of years to promote the game how can golf yeah. possibly struggle in scotland i mean it's such an amazing place to play golf and, it, and it's yeah. not you know, I assume it's not that expensive to play golf if you join a local club, you know, Dunbar or where Huggy played or Gallon or Long Nidri or, you know, sort of Scotts Craig, those courses that aren't so famous but are really good fun. I mean, how can it be a struggling game over there? I don't get it. It's, well, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, I mean, you know, young kids at school, um, again, are much more distracted by, you know, computers, social uh, yeah. platforms and stuff like that. They don't, they don't have the opportunity to get into golf. Golf, I think, is... Uh, possibly less expensive now than it has been for a, a, quite a long time. Golf clubs are realising that they've got to become innovative in order to try and attract people. There's more of the nomadic type of membership that uh, that we're seeing over here. You're probably getting that uh, maybe maybe in bits down there. People can't justify, um, you, you know, spending a thousand pounds a year to play two two games of golf because of work commitments, because of family commitments, because of length of time it takes out in the golf course as well. Uh, which is another topic that we may or may not uh, uh, encroach upon. Uh, it, it, it's just I, a lot of it is just the cycle. You know, there are there are years you're going to get good players, there are years you're not. We have gone through quite a doldrum for for some years. Uh, Richie Ramsey, Mark Warren, they're about the last few guys that are coming out. There's one or two. In fact, you know one very well. He, uh, I think, he won the Aussie Amateur a couple of years ago, didn't he? Connor Sang. Connor Sang. Yeah, yeah, he's um, good. Yeah, good yeah. So, so we get Connor Sang. We got um, uh, Ewan Ferguson, Walker Cup player. Uh, we got a couple. Of, we got two or three. Uh, Bradley Neal won the Amateur Championship. We've got some possibilities. Um, but again, again, I just sort of say that just because we are the home of golf, it doesn't give you. Um, an entitlement to feel that, that you've got to be producing 20 or 30 good golfers every year. Um, you know, we're a very small population. Uh, yes, we are, the, we are the home of golf. Um, and, and in this instance, I think that's probably a, a very big cross to bear. Yeah. 
Um, this the expectation level is 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 incredibly high, almost ridiculously high. However, again, going back, the point is an awful lot of investment has gone in, and uh, and and there aren't and there haven't been a lot of uh, rewards or results based on that investment. And and of, of course, that to me is the question mark. That's where funding then subsequently has dropped. That's where the members at the local golf clubs are saying, well. Why are we putting all this money in for the guys to go and guys and girls to go on winter training camps to um, to Qatar and Abu Dhabi or down to South Africa if we're not seeing if we're not seeing you know the benefits and um, and, and it's a legitimate it's a legitimate question and one of the other things if anybody does come through the system and I think how it, it would benefit if they gave something back to the yeah. system for one or two years off off the back of that yeah we've started that in Australia I think just the last couple of years haven't we Clay? I think Minji Lee might be one of the they first have, yeah. and Cameron Smith yeah. who uh, who are sort of paying some money back to Golf Australia for what the which I think is a very fair and I don't think any of the players really have had a problem with it they've just never been asked to do it necessarily in the past one of the things Paul Laurie said there's a bunch of stuff you said there Andrew which I'd like to explore further but before that. Paul Laurie said in that same piece by Huggy, we don't have a Rory. I think we all know what he means by that. And I guess this touches on what I was sort of saying before about the the connection between the professional game and the amateur game. Golf in Australia has never been healthier than when the Sharks strutted the fairways in the 80s and the 90s as the world's most dominant player. How important is that? And the second question then, you've been at the high end of Scottish golf. What's the burden like on the individual who might be that horrible term, the next Norman or the next Nicholas. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think I think one, you know, every every country cry, uh, craves for a potential superstar to to just reignite the you know the golfing fire, if you like. But of course, they are few and far between. Mm-hmm. You know, these are superstars. You know, there was Norman in the eighties and the nineties, um, very early early two thousands. You know, McElroy. Uh, you know, just now potentially. I don't know, maybe Justin Thomas. Um, you, you know, you, you've got you've got these guys. But I mean, funny thing is, I mean, you just you look at somebody like Norman, and almost even before he started swinging a golf club, he was going to be a legend, wasn't he? he just he just had the looks, he had the presence, he, you know, the size. It. Um, He's got it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He just yeah. he just filled the newspapers, didn't he? Um, you know, Rory. Yeah, I mean, you know, Rory is a superstar, um, and uh, you know, and when you think of the population of the world, <laughs> there's not there ain't very many, is there? <laughs> well, it's, 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 there's no guarantee one's just going to pop out every, any year. In, in any given, this is the thing. In any given country, I mean, the, the, yeah. the statistically, Rory coming from Northern Ireland is as far-fetched as almost anything you could imagine. The most yeah. likely place for that player to bob up is America. Um, yeah. So the yeah. the it factor, I guess, is is what it's about, Andrew. And everybody wants you know a player with it. And it's funny; it's not just the winning, is it? Ricky Fowler has it, and has not been a prolific winner. Hasn't won one of the big ones. Rory has it. Yeah. Four majors yeah. by the age of twenty five. Um, yeah. Both have it in that sense. What about that second question? What if you are <clears throat> Rory in Northern Ireland, a country with a small population with that sort of potential? Yeah. The, the burden on him to be to become Rory. And he's gone ahead and done it. But what's the, you, you must have lived a little bit of that or tasted a bit of that. And it's the same here in Australia. We're always looking for the next Norman. It's a horrible term. Or the next Kari Webb. And we, you know, yeah. we tag young players with this, you know, this one might be the next. What's it like to be that player? We never hear yeah, from Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be that player. But, but there's no, there is no doubt that, A, it would need a special individual to be able to handle that. Because, again, going back to what you're talking about with the modern game, 
the social networks and stuff like that. There is so, so much more hype, pressure, expectation, um, you know, appearance in absolutely everything. Every every single article that's written, your name is mentioned, and very, very difficult for that person to carry off and continue their game and continue their their strive to to start them without being affected in some shape or form. Because you know, for a for a youngster, you know, who would probably be about you know maybe seventeen in the ladies' game, maybe even younger, um, eighteen, nineteen in the men's game. Oh, very, very, very difficult to take. Don't you agree, Clays? Yeah, I do. But I think it's, you know, I think superstars that, like you said, they're such rare people that they've got, you know, I think no matter what you throw at them, they, they're going to be mm. superstars because they've They'll got... They'll deal that. with it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Savvy, you know, I mean, you're talking about training camps. I often say to kids here, you know, the only tournament Savvy ever played before he went to the European Tour was the Padrania Caddy Championship. You know, talk, yeah. talking about going on, you know, winter camps to Dubai and South Africa. I mean, there was a guy who was, he turned up on the tour and he nearly won the Open 18 months later. Yeah. You know, with nothing more than an extraordinary game. Can that happen again, Clades? Can that still happen? Can we see another city? Is it possible this, in this day and age? Well, I think it's a different, I mean, I think, you know, we're going to bang on it, well, harp on the usual drinking game but um, <laughs> always at home get your nip glasses I ready. think one of the I think one of the biggest problems is that the equipment's throwing so many players into the same pool because it's given so many kids the talent to do the same thing when I mean, everyone now Andrew I'm sure you would agree and you were probably the post that you and were one of the posted children for um, the change let's call it the change well, well guys who didn't keep up because when the equipment blew up, you were kind of one of those yeah, guys yeah. who didn't grab the extra forty yards. Yep. You know, perhaps Corey Pave, and there were a whole bunch of guys who, you know, there, there were a group of guys who, when that Pro V came out in that big driver, they just made this crazy jump in distance, and other guys didn't. And you know, I think that now, twenty years on from that, there are so many kids with the same skill sets because the equipment, the, the hybrids, and the 64-degree sand irons and the ball that doesn't spin and the massive driver heads. They've given so many kids the same set of skills because the clubs are so much easier to hit. Whereas when we played, you know, I don't want to sound like a bitchy old man, Too but, late. you know, I mean, you probably played a bit with Bernard Gallagher, who was, a, you would say, a poor driver of the ball in terms of hitting in the middle of the face. He got it in play. But you know, no one drives the ball like Bernard Gallagher anymore because it, it's just everyone just rips it. He was a great player who got the driver where he had to get it to to play from with the irons and the putter. But you know, the modern driver is so easy to hit now that it's it, it's given so many guys the ability to hit the same drives that Greg Norman and Sevy hit and and Woozy and the the guys who are and Sandy, the guys who are properly great long drivers. Everyone does that now. So yeah, you know, yeah. You know, no, I, I agree. So, so how do you break out of the pack? And of course, there are always going to be guys who are going to be, you know, Dustin Johnsons. And I mean, Tiger was, I, I'm when Tiger came out, there was a period in the, you know, the, the early 80s when Nick Price won a few majors and sort of Greg was still around that no one's ever going to dominate the game again because there were so many good players and then Tiger came out and blew everyone away. But now everyone's saying the same thing again. No one's ever going to dominate the game again because there were so many good players. But I think the equipment has thrown, as I said, 
and throwing thousands of kids into, the, into a pool all with the same skill sets. Because if you can't hit a one iron or a two iron, then you get a hybrid club. Whereas guys like, you know, Norman and Woozy and Sevy and Nicholas and Weisskopf and those guys that could hit those towering high one and two irons had such an advantage over the rest because the rest couldn't do that. But now they all can because the clubs let them do that. For, for any youngsters listening, a one iron and a two iron is an old-fashioned golf club that players like Clates used to use uh, instead of hybrids. What do you reckon about all that, Andrew? You so you lived through this. You played through the change, didn't you? Let's call it the quickening. Um, yeah. When the yeah, Pro V1 came out and all that. What was, what's your yeah, What do you think no. about what Clates is saying there? Well, uh, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, th- I think, um, you know, the, the game, the, the examination that almost each round of golf is, is set now is different to the one um you know in the in the 60s 70s 80s 90s you know prior prior to sort of 2000 um you know their 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 golf was all about reading the lie controlling the ball flight shapes of shots course management were crucial um you know adapting to conditions course conditions weather conditions to me it was much more of a three-dimensional game now it's a one-dimensional game the test is is the same week in week out Actually, fortunately, you're one of the last bastions that, that are left with the magnificent golf courses you've got down there and the variety that you've got. But uh, almost on a weekly basis in Europe, certainly in the PGA Tour, it's just a case of how far can you hit it. Of course, you'll find it because it doesn't go offline that much nowadays in any case. And all you've got to do is wedge it on nine iron in the green. And that doesn't take much thought. Takes great skill. Here's the problem. As soon as you start to talk about this stuff, you get the grumpy old man tag and, you know, the game's changed and things should evolve around the game. But but it, it, it it's not necessarily as entertaining either, is it, Andrew? It, for those of us who grew up with a game, uh, it's I, No, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think, you don't, you don't see as much of the flair. You get these young kids in, and people standing behind Dustin Johnson watching him hit it and it's spectacular, it's fantastic, but it's the same every time he's got his drive on the hand. Mm. Um, you know, there's. I, I, I mean, I, I've I've done quite a bit of obviously on course commentary, and it's incredible the amount of mistakes I see people making, uh, just just crazy errors off the tee, not not adapting to the weather conditions, uh, the the temperature, what that's going to do to the golf ball, and finding themselves out of position. But guess what? At the end of the week, they're still getting paid an absolute fortune. Yeah, that's right. When when twentieth pays nicely, uh, yeah. the incentive is not quite there. There's so much yeah. in this, isn't well, there? It's harder to learn. It's harder to learn your lesson. You just go. You just you just turn up to the bank manager on Monday morning. And he's got a big smile on the back of his face. Yeah, on his face. Indeed, Clayce, you're a great one for this. When people sort of ask a question or, or make an accusation about being a grumpy old man or this, other, you're a great one for asking a question to answer a question. Here's my question: Who doesn't want to see a game where Dustin and Rory hit one iron to the fifteenth at Augusta, the way Jack did? I would love to see that. Wouldn't the game be fantastic if we got the opportunity to see Dustin and Rory? show off that extraordinary skill as opposed to a six or a seven or, you know, maybe a five iron that they most well, generally hit into that hole at, at Augusta? Well, we saw it on yesterday, on Sunday in Canada. I mean, it was when Nicholas, I watched the tape a while ago, Nicholas and Oosterhaus, Peter Oosterhaus, playing the last hole in 1981 there. And Jack, I think, had an eagle last and he had a two iron on the green or... Is that more interesting than watching Dustin Johnson a wedge on the green? I mean, I mean, what's more exciting, watching Dustin Johnson driving it far enough to hit, to hit a wedge on the green or watching Jack Nicholson at a two-iron? 
Well, for me, there is only one answer to that question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't care about Dustin Johnson drive. You know, because once the thing's gone 300 yards, going 350, I can't tell the difference. Nobody can, but, it's especially on TV. You know, Give me Jack Nicholas hitting a two-iron over Dustin Johnson in a wedge any day. I mean, I've got no interest in watching Dustin Johnson hit a wedge 170 yards over water under a par five green. It just, and I don't think anyone has. I mean, you, know, it's, it, it, you couldn't imagine anything more boring than that, or at least I couldn't. The PGA Tour might disagree, might they, Andrew? Professional golf, touring professional, has never been oh. in a more profitable place. So their well, their no, response no, is that's what that's all that's what they're interested in, isn't it? The bottom yeah. line, isn't it? It's just it's just drawing in the numbers and uh, and 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 you know how how it can be sold. Yeah, sure. Mm. And it seems to be doing. Uh, I mean, are we wrong? I mean, is it is it more entertaining? I mean, you can't tell on television whether someone's hit at two eighty or three fifty, can you? It is literally impossible. I, I I think you could take experienced golfers to take away the commentary and all the graphics, watch somebody hit a drive and say how far did it go? They'd have no idea. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm just look. I mean, I'm a Scotsman, and obviously not a cricketer. I guess. I mean, I still like seeing the, seeing the batsman kick it out, the, you know, smash it out the ground, you know, for a six all the time, rather than rather than one just, you know, you know, dribbling down a, whatever it is, inside leg or whatever, running and going away for four. You know, that's almost more interesting. But but like I said, I'm a Scotsman. Don't don't know, really know enough about cricket. I'm sure there's much more subtleties and nuances to, to that. Well, there was um, when it went for five days. Now it only was, goes for 20 say, overs. Yeah, well, without, without mentioning sandpaper. But, yeah, like you said, Rod, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's big numbers coming to it. I think people like Ricky Fowler are great for that because he really engages with the youngsters. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the younger kids that are coming through uh, understand, see, you know, I th- I think a few of them do understand the responsibility to the next generation coming through, and, and they try and engage with them. Um, but um, yeah, I guess it, I guess it, from that from what you've said, it is in a in a healthy place. But there's no doubt, like 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 uh, Mike said, there watching Nicholas as good as he was, with a two iron in his hand to to a pin and a par four. Uh, th- there's a lot more can go wrong than there is with somebody with a nine iron or a wedge. And, and 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 that that to me would keep more people on the, on the edge of the seats. Mm. Does it speak though, Andrew, directly to something which I think is really crucial? One of the great differences about professional golf from all other professional sports is that traditionally the bulk of spectators have been participants. If you've never played golf, hitting a nine iron over water, or hitting a two iron over water means nothing to you. They're, they're both the same. You've got to hit it over the water. But those of us who've played undoubtedly find what Nicholas did far more impressive than what Johnson did in terms of the clubs that they've hit. So is it a case that the particip- being a participant changes the viewing experience? As you said, not being you know being Scottish, when you watch cricket, you like to see him hit it over the fence. But perhaps if you grow up in England, what you like to see is a guy grind out a century over the course of an entire day. And that comes yeah. from participating. So that, that nexus is important, isn't it? That... That I, yeah, I think that's really interesting what you've just said there, isn't it? Because if you look at the PGA Tour and you look at how successful it's become, and, and unfortunately some of the noises that are made at the top of everybody's backswing on a Sunday afternoon when, when somebody wants to be heard, it's not actually, in a lot of instances, the golf crowd. It, it's They've engaged a larger crowd mm-hmm. uh, who, who potentially are not are not golfers. And, and you know, if, I guess the argument the argument can be if, if we can attract... These people potentially, some of these will become members. Potentially, some of these will be, will come to the game, and therefore, it's no such a bad thing. What do you reckon, Clates? Do does anybody from the sixteenth hole at Phoenix? That's an unfair example. Because it's it's yeah. clearly that many of them, most of them, are not going to go on to either try the game or join a golf club. But does that theory, do you think, 
work? Do you need to have played golf to appreciate how good the pros really are? People who don't play watch it on TV and they just think that's how golf is. You take this club and you hit it within a foot of the hole because that's what you see on the highlights. Yeah, I watched a friend of mine coach a young tennis player last week in Tasmania and he's ranked at 5,000 or what, I don't know. But he looked really good to me. He looked fantastic. So, yeah, to, to an unsophisticated eye, it's hard to tell the difference between a really good player and just someone who doesn't play very well at all. No, so I don't kind of, you know, um, I'm not sure. Speaking of the health of the game, I was going to ask Andrew about the European tour. What's its future, do you think? <laughs> What's his future? In case you're not uh, in enough trouble, Andrew, let's just see if we can find a, another tripwire for you to fall over. Well, cause of, well, well my, my, my next point, for the first time ever, the best Europeans have sort of abandoned mm. playing golf in Europe and all gone to America. So, so how, how does that augur for the future of that tour? How was that? I don't know. Tommy Fleetwood still plays in, in Europe. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, but, but Rory and, I mean, Justin. Molinari seems like he's largely playing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Jessica, what was there. that? Yeah, there's always been some. Rosie, Rosie lives over there. Yeah, yeah. Casey. Yeah. Um, I mean, Fleetwood. Yeah. I love Fleetwood. I think he's a great player. I think mm, so he's going to win something yeah. big at some point. Yeah, he's hopefully fantastic. an Australian yeah. Open if he comes down here, yeah. which would be nice. Anyway, yep. yeah. You know, for, yeah, Fitz, Fitzpatrick. So, but look, yeah, it's, look, there's always the sort of stars have always, uh, you know, been magnetised by the by the PGA Tour, if if, if you like, um, and, and I think that's always going to happen. Um, you know the way the world ranking system works. There is almost a world tour, uh, just not in name, uh, out there. In any case, um, I think uh, I think what Keith Pelly has done and what he's tried to do at the European Tour, I actually think you got to commend him for that. I think he's aware that that golf wasn't as attractive to as much of the population as it possibly could have been, and he's you know he's he's. You know, tried to be innovative and and put a lot of thought into trying to change it up, and he's not been scared to take risks and and do things that potentially could have fallen flat and maybe cost him his job. So, um, I think again, it comes down to the state of the game. But I, I applaud him for even sort of trying those things. Um, I, I, Mike, it comes back to the same old thing: the, the PGA Tour ha, has got it made. Um, you know, population. Um, Everybody speaking the same language. Time zones are a bit of an issue, um, you know. It, whereas you know Europe still fights with various cultures, even a golfing culture. There's still a little bit of elitism uh, in some of the countries down here. Junior programs, uh, things like that. It's uh, it, you know it, it's difficult, and um, the European Tour, I guess, is well always always sort of struggled to to attract. You know the world's best to some of its sort of premier events, but you know, certainly not for a lack of trying. I don't know whether I've answered your question, mate. But um, no, no, I think it's, yeah, I think difficult. It's, I think it's a great tour, and really, it's the world tour. I mean, it's playing in Australia and Asia, yeah. and the Middle East and South Africa and China, and you know, it's a great tour. I just I read somewhere the other day that someone made a comment about the, the Rolex events, where the money is obviously massive, but there are events that put up half the prize money but get better fields at the top end because they pay presumably huge chunks of appearance money. Last week being an example, the, the thing in the Porsche Open in Germany where they, you know, they, they paid a bunch of players, but um, Dubai obviously, but those Rolex events are... They've been contentious, haven't they? 
Rolex well, ones. Well, I'm assuming they don't pay any appearance money, or, or do they still? Uh, I'm not aware that they pay any appearance. I think I think that the the, so. uh, the idea, of course, is that, that that playing for that kind of money, you would bite anybody's hand off to go and play it, and I can't yeah. understand guys that won't. Yeah. Well, this well, yeah. haven't you? Haven't you touched on another nerve there? The, the problem with golf at the top level is the players now make so much money. Player and Palmer and Nicholas came to Australia because there was a financial incentive and they were yeah. in a financial position where there was still something called an incentive. When you make the sorts of money that the world's top 20-odd players do, there's almost no financial incentive enough to sway That's a decision, correct, yeah. is there? Really? I mean, yeah. Tiger Woods yeah, needs you're, another you're big- $3 million like he needs another 200000 yeah the, yeah, the amounts might as well be the same. So the, the financial incentives, we've really felt the impact of that here in Australia. We can afford, essentially, one world-class player to pay them to come and play the Australian Open uh, and one or two of our top Australian stars who also are paid to come here, but I suspect a discounted rate, you would hope, on what they might oh, well. expect elsewhere. Um, and that hasn't been great Not for the game down here, has it, Clates? That Well, I'm not sure there was a discounted rate last year. I think Adam Scott was... A discounted rate, but I don't think. But I mean, last year I'm not was, privy to that. Well, anyway, Spieth and Day, I, I, it wouldn't have been much under two million to get back those guys. I wouldn't have thought. No, you wouldn't be paying much less yeah. than a million dollars. So, yeah. so that so that, so the Rolex series is it's essentially split the European Tour into two camps, hasn't it? There's the there's the players who qualify for the Rolex, and then there's the the ones who don't. I know that was quite contentious the first year, but but just having that seven or eight million US dollar purse, that's certainly not going to attract the attention of any of the top Americans, is it, Andrew? Uh, I'd like to think it was. I, th- I think the shame is, again, you're a product of your own success, but if you, if you carry on down that path, then where is it going to end? Um, you know, that, that's, that's my question, because if somebody wants two million one year, then guess what, the next, million, the next year it's going to be three, until all of a sudden, until all of a sudden they, they fall off that pedestal. Um, it's um, it, it's 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 very very it's very very difficult. Sorry, Ross. That's right. Worse, worse than that, Andrew. What happened is because Tiger Woods was paid three because he was worth three, a whole bunch of guys who weren't worth half a million put their price up to a million. Of course, yeah. <laughs> if he's getting I mean, three, absolutely. I'm worth so, one. Well, you're not. Yeah. But we can't get anybody, yeah. so we've got to take what we. I, I remember a time, Clay's when we paid. I, and no disrespect to Bob Estes, he's a terrific, terrific bloke. It might have been Billy Mayfield paid him three hundred thousand to come and play in the. In the Australian Open back in the mid two thousands, what return are you going to see on on that investment? Yeah, in fact, yeah. I think Rocco Mediate wanted two or three hundred thousand to come and play in the Australian Open a year or two ago. Yeah, um, and then there's a two in front of a one player at the moment for the Australian Open. Hmm. So Not you know, two hundred thousand. No, yeah, so <laughs> that's right. You know, so um, at a zero. And that, yeah, that is really becoming that, – that will impact us down here. The Australian Open is now in a situation, Andrew, where <clears throat> not being co-sanctioned with any other tour, Cameron Davis, who won it last year, is a young, a really good player yeah. who really could okay, be something. Yeah. The, his entire reward for winning the Australian Open is essentially was the check. Uh, whereas yeah. if you'd won the PGA, the Australian PGA, the following week, you got a card in Europe, which yeah, in yeah, terms yeah, of ongoing yeah. value is much more. So what, what the Australian Open has been living off is this sort of a star-studded field two or three of top players and most of Australia's best make the effort to come and play. But beyond that, it gets pretty quickly, it gets diluted. Um, so I, you know, I assume that what they're thinking of doing is trying to maybe try and become a European to a co-sanctioned event. But again, that brings its own problems. So yeah, it, it's not none of this stuff's easy, but they're the problems faced by 
the administrators of the game, aren't they? If you want Tiger, everyone, in, every golf fan in Australia wants to see Tiger Woods come and play because they turn on Fox Sports every every week and they watch the golf and they see Dustin and Rory and Phil and they're just used to seeing the world's top players. If there's going to be a tournament in Sydney, you'd expect those players to be there. But to get them there, my goodness, um, that ain't cheap. So, <clears throat> not yeah, a Sorry, you go, Andrew. No, well, I know I was going to say, you know, and a lot of this has got to do with the agent. It won't necessarily be the player. A lot. Did you say a lot of it has? Well, yeah, yeah. What about most? Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, so so where is the, where is the player maybe getting a bad rap for it? Yeah. It's it's not necessarily him. It's the it's the agent trying to make sure that he's a he's doing his job right, and b he's also getting enough for himself. But. Yeah. Um, well, they've got to fly the know, whole team out, Andrew. They, they've, all, they've also got to look at that and say, and say, mind you, they won't be because it's just it's business. You know, it's just. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the answer is. Middlemen, hey, the scourge of humanity, Clates, the middleman, whose job is yeah. to create problems so that he can then solve them and justify his own position. Yeah. The middleman. Yeah. Um, did you watch Tiger play at tennis, you know, Andrew, last week? Uh, I, I, I was giving Rory's group all four days, which was great. But I just, I just caught glimpses of him, Mike. Thoughts? How's Rory playing? He played pretty well, didn't he? Uh, Rory, Rory was playing great, tee to green, uh, actually off the tee and and long irons. Uh, his putting was even pretty good. Um, I'd be, I'd be, I'd be surprised if he walked away from there saying that he was happy with his wedge game. Um, I think yeah. I think if he was on, I think if he was honest with himself, he uh, he, he could have given himself a lot more looks uh, at Buddy. Um, if if, um, uh, if yeah, if he's honest, if he's honest with himself about that, it's been a problem for a while, hasn't it? For Rory, really, though. I mean, we all point to his putting, which historically I suppose has been streaky. He's good, he's brilliant, and he's bad, is not particularly good. But it has been his wedge game the last year or two, hasn't it, Andrew? Really, that's he's, he's given himself. Enormous opportunities off the tee well, and not hit it yeah, close I mean, enough, really. Yeah, um, I mean he's so, he's so so good. He's so so good, and it, you know it's a bit like it's a, it's a bit like the Greg Norman thing that you were talking about earlier on, Mike. You know I don't want to criticise somebody no. that is absolutely superb, but 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 as as good as he is with the rest of his game, if he's if if his wedge play was right up there, then my goodness, um, he'd almost be unbeatable. Um, even 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 if even if the rest of his game went off, yeah. Um, it's just um, he, he's driving is so incredible. His long irons are incredible. But uh, if, if if everything was graded as a result of that, then his wedges should be getting dialed into about five or six feet every single time, and they're not. Yeah. If you can so afford a track man like Dustin, the, sorry, what, what he be, would he be better off if the ball went forty yards shorter and he had fewer wedge shots and more five <laughs> and six shots? <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, those old, those old Balata golf balls that that that, that you were using, Jim. Um, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, As a serious question, though. Probably, well, the serious question is he'd probably win more, wouldn't he? Yeah. Because everybody everybody would be shorter, and he and he would be he would be better than everybody else with longer arms. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, everybody would be shorter. Yeah. yeah. Is isn't the truth though that that the best players in the game would separate themselves further if the equipment wasn't quite as homogenous. I think that's the point that Clates is making, and I think he's right. Yeah, um, I think so, yeah. The, the reward for somebody like Adam Scott, um, you know, I, I would imagine the likes of Rory and Adam Scott, they'd never say it publicly, and Dustin Johnson must think, you know, here I am, I've got this extraordinary skill with the driver, and yet I don't get rewarded as much for it as I should because everybody's got these huge-headed drivers with massive sweet spots and they can all get it somewhere out there. Do you know what I mean? You've got to go down past 60 on the PGA Tour driving stats to find someone who doesn't average 300 yards. 
and oh, 60, 61 averages 299.8 or something. So that that's kind of what you're doing. Average. That's average. Average driving distance. And then that's just – that's beyond staggering. That is a, diff, a totally different game, um, unless the conspiracy. courses have gone up 20%. There's another conspiracy theory, right, yeah. for our listener. Um, <laughs> Hello, Mum. Hope you're enjoying the show, yeah. <laughs> if you – if you're a good player or one of the best players, you would surely be arguing as hard as you could to make the equipment more difficult to use because it's gotten too easy. But, of course, their silence is bought by the manufacturer. <laughs> right. You would be arguing that, Clates, if you didn't carry a bag with a sponsor's name on it. Yes. That, that, that's good... my conspiracy theory for the, for, for the week. But, yeah, if Rory had a plain back bag and you know, he was doing what Patrick Reeve was doing and playing with the different woods and irons and, you, you, you could argue for the equipment being altered to reward the better players on the tour. Hmm. But, of course, their silence is bought, hmm. I think. And it's not cheap. They, they make plenty no. of money out of equipment deals, don't they, Andrew? I mean, it's one of the staples. You know, your game can yeah, disappear for three years and you'll still be getting decent money out of your if you're, a, if you're one of the world's top players who, who can yeah, move equipment. Yeah, that's right. If, if you want, if, you know, if, if you want to get a sponsorship deal, the last thing you're going to do is slag off your sponsors, yeah, of are course. you? Yeah, of course. Uh, which makes yeah. it tricky. And so then, where does that leave the game? I suppose, and you know, the, I mean, Woods is obviously uh, different. He's, yeah, well, the government, well, the governing, the governing bodies, I think, need, need to look at the prospect of of, of possibly bifurcating. Oh, I couldn't agree uh, you know, more. Cre- creating you know different rules for the pros and amateurs and all the you know they they did they did something similar in the tennis they slowed the golf ball down in the tennis I don't you know instead instead of leaving it to the players you know maybe the the governing yeah. bodies need to obviously need to look at it yeah. Nicholas has been going on about that for years well we're all in furious agreement yeah what 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 do you think is the resistance to bifurcate it seems the most and I think most golfers would think it's the most anybody who goes to a golf tournament and sees Dustin or Rory or Adam Scott hit a golf ball will very quickly be. Um, you know, come to the realization that you know they don't play a game that in any way, shape, or form resembles golf on television. I think most amateurs would be happy. Why are the governing bodies so against the notion of separate equipment rules? Do you think, Andrew? I understand why we all want to play by the same rules in every other department, but in terms of equipment, yeah. what's what's the potential? Well, I, for them? I think it's just that. I think I think they just don't want to to separate. You know, just don't want to separate the amateur and professional game. Uh, in that way, they want to they want to try and keep it continuous. They want to be able to sell everything right right through the board. Um, I, I I really don't know, Rod. It's uh, it's making it, less it's, sense with it, each passing year, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's you know it's confusing because you, you know the game the it's taking longer to get round golf courses. Guess what? Golf courses are being made bigger. Guess why? Because golf balls are going further. Um, you know, it's it's it's. Um, I, I don't know. We're witnessing this, you know, sort of in, in front of us. And and if we could sort of slow the golf ball down, not make the golf ball go as far, people will maybe get round a little bit quicker. Um, rounds might be a little bit more interesting. Um, like you said, not as homogenous. So the better play, better players will still come to the fore. Uh, and uh, and even if you're an amateur golfer and a good amateur golfer at that, you'll get a, you'll get a period of adjustment. It won't take you that long in, in any case to get your new yardage or measurements with the balls that you were using in the amateur game that you can now subsequently use in the pro game. So yeah. I don't really... 
if you're that good at golf, you deserve to have to make a transition. Let's be that's that, that's the punishment yeah. and and the tax that you should bear for having the talent to be any good at the game. And that comes from a double digit marker. And I think we all feel the same. If you're good enough to play off scratch or better, you deserve to make an adjustment at some point. That's not uh, not unfair for that to be asked. Yeah, I, I don't see it happening in the near future, unfortunately. But it would just it would just so quickly solve everything, wouldn't it, Clates? Um, of course, the, the problem with it is yeah. that the RNA and the USJ have no authority to make a separate set of professional rules, and perhaps that is what they're worried about. They could say if they wanted to, we're changing the rules for our two opens. That's as much as they could do, and you have to use this slow-down golf. There's no – PGA Tour has no uh, responsibility to follow the rules of the USJ. They don't want to be in the rules business, but if all of their players came and said, we're getting pressure from our, our sponsors to keep using, you know, the, what's now the amateur equipment, it would be – Quite the, be quite the controversy, wouldn't it, Clates? Because they have no authority. Well, be, the USGA, no, no. But, but if the RNA changed the rule, the equipment rule, then the tour players wouldn't be breaking a rule of golf and playing with the. So the tour could choose to do that. The, the, That's yeah. the, the tour could choose to disregard the rule, at, but at, they would be breaking at, the rule. At what point is the incentive enough for them to do? I guess that's the question. They showed with the anchoring ban, if you recall, Tim Fincham made quite a song Have and they dance. Anchoring? Have they banned anchoring? Who? Uh, yeah, <laughs> mostly. Uh, they're really banned anchoring? Yeah, m- mostly. Yeah, but I was just thinking about that. Cause did, did Mike Clayton not move with technology in all those days ago? Uh, yeah, he is. A, absolutely. And he could, he could take advantage of it, Rod. I, I seem to think he did. Yeah, you, imagine if I that did, broomstick actually, had fallen yeah, on the ball. I did this that long part of I know you yeah. did. But, what if that had fallen on the ball? Would have been the same penalty, but, you know, <laughs> might have gone. Um, but that, I guess that's the, the big question. I wonder whether that's what the USGA in particular really worry about. At what point? Is the incentive enough for the PGA Tour to simply say, well, we're not going to play by your rules if that's the case? And the pressure would be great, wouldn't it, Andrew? I could imagine that the pressure from the players who would be getting pressure from the sponsors, the manufacturers, that that pressure would be real. Is that, you know, we, 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 we don't want to play by some separate set of rules. We want to be able to sell to the general public the equipment that we use. Uh, and the PGA Tour is a player's organisation. They're obviously the biggest, most professional power. It's not beyond the realms of possibility that they would just split the game. And I can't see that that would be good for the game. So I'm, a pro, I'm, I'm pro-bifurcation, but I think it's a lot more complicated than we sometimes think it might be. It looks like a great solution, yeah, but sure, it, yeah, it has I'm its sure. issues and I, I, big issues. I just think, I remember they changed the ball from 1.62 to 1.68, though. I mean, yeah. Oh, do you remember they, that, Clates? That I've never heard you mention that before, Clates. Yeah, <laughs> but that, was a, that was a much bigger change than what we're talking about players having to adapt to now to, to, to play with a different size ball was because the RNA introduced the big ball into the open in 1974 so there was a bifurcated game from 74 until you know, for almost 10 years until the big ball became the ball of choice for everybody well not the ball of choice the, the, the ball of the rule mandated ball yeah so for eight or nine years the game was bifurcated in Britain yeah, absolutely. So, so none of this is new. There's nothing new in the world, is it, uh, I suppose? Uh, on the upside, to, to close out, Andrew, we've, it's been a good grumpy old man session. I'm sure we all feel better for it. Yeah. And uh, in a great negative. Overall, though, uh, golf is still the greatest game of all, is it not? What are the good things about golf in this modern era, since we've stripped down all some of the bad ones? Well, it's just, it's just fantastic, isn't it? Uh, it, it? It exposes the true sort of nature of, of each individual who takes it up. It, it uh, you know, it, it in effect 
turns you naked and 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 bears your soul to the world really you know whether you're in business or, or, or whether you're in sport you can you can tell anything from the individual after playing a few holes of golf with them whether there's somebody to do business with or somebody to avoid at all costs it's uh it unlocks uh, an incredible amount of emotions uh in people and um and and in effect lays them bare but it's a it's a great game it's a great game for kids to get involved in um it's still um a tremendous amount of etiquette involved round about it, and and you know golf clubs are not bad places of education for sort of kids to kids to grow up in, and and great opportunity to to keep them off the streets. Yeah, it's amazing. I must have heard thirty separate golf pros use that same line to me. That you know, if I'm thinking about going into business with someone, the first thing I do is go and play around a golf with them, and I can tell you by the fifth tee whether I'd sign a contract mm. with them or not. That's amazing, isn't it? It uh, really is quite amazing. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, and I'm not sure if I've ever heard you tell you, what was it like playing against Tiger in that singles <laughs> match in 99? There was, of course, the controversial incident, which will stay away from your ball disappeared. I think it might have even been quite early in the round, but, of course, there was the running on the green and all that sort of stuff. But what's it like to climb into the arena one-on-one at the Ryder Cup with a player who may well go down as certainly in the conversation yeah. for one of the greatest of all time? What was that like? Yeah, well, it was it was it was interesting. I mean, not trying to hold you up, but but fortunately, I got a chance to play with them in the last round of the Open Championship. Funnily enough, in '99 at Carnoustie, oh. uh, just a couple of, a couple of months before, uh, I didn't deal with that too well actually, <laughs> and uh, that that was the difficult bit because because. You know he was, you know, he'd won his first Masters, I think, by that stage. He went on to win 13 more majors. He was at the top of the tree, and there was a, an incredible and intense media circus that followed him round. Actually, even inside the ropes as well. So that was something that I hadn't got used to, and uh, it was very, very difficult. Uh, come the time, uh, I'm, I'm drawn with him to play um, in the Ryder Cup. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get some shut eye and I'm switching on the, the golf channel uh, the night before looking, you know, listening to what they've got to say. I don't know why the hell I was listening. Mistake <laughs> number one. That. Yeah, that's right. But they, but they went, you know, they went through every single singles match and they said, well, you know, this this will go our way, that'll go our way, that'll go our way. And, and very nicely, Mark Lai said, well, this one's going to be eight and seven. I thought, well, that's very kind of you. Thanks very much. You know, I'd like to think, I'd like to think maybe showed us a little bit yeah. more respect given the fact that I'd made a, you know, I'd made the Ryder Cup team. Ryder Cup so, team, that's um, right, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so that, that, was, that was a nice little thought to go to, go to bed with. Because uh, you Sam weren't the favourite, were you? Before that match, you weren't the favourite. Just not, not, just just not. But, but Sam Sam Tons was very good. He was a great vice captain, and he, he came up to me and he said, "Look, it's a great draw, Sam. It's a great draw." I said, How, "How's that, Sam? He's you know head and shoulders above everybody else because it's only eighteen holes. It's only eighteen holes. Anybody can beat anybody over eighteen holes." I really appreciated what he was trying to do, but I didn't believe a word of it. Um, and we, we, we went. Apparently, we went on the first tee, and according to Steve Williams, um, who, who may or may not uh, be prone to the odd. Um, um, white lie out there. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, apparently said that Tiger said to me on the first tee, bearing in mind I hadn't played any matches until that. He said, uh, "I know you've not played yet. This is a dog leg right to left par four. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I can tell you, my head was plugged so far somewhere where it shouldn't have been. That my ears weren't working properly because I never heard them say that. Oh, I, was, I was still thinking. I was still thinking about trying to balance the ball on the tee peg. <laughs> what was it like playing right ago? I know, as you said, you were unfortunately you only got to play sort of the, the singles that year. But what was that like to be a part of all of that? And, and what yeah, a circus that, that is! The whole thing, the whole thing was fantastic. It really was. You know, to to be part of a team, something that we don't do hardly ever. 
to be part of a team uh, of some of the best golfers in the world, uh, and you know, and for them to, to you know for for them to to be seen to be doing anything they possibly could to make it as enjoyable, as relaxing, or as as calm and as safe for you as possible was really really interesting. You know, these these are guys you're trying to you know you're trying to you know, kick their backsides every single, you know, week on a daily basis and they're trying to do the same thing to you. And here they were, you know, asking if you were all right, trying to keep you calm, trying to give you some tips, you know, really trying to encourage you. Just being a, a massive part of that was uh, was an incredible experience. And of course to put on, you know, you know, a, a Ryder Cup sweater for Europe just just meant so much to a European. Mm, yeah, fantastic. And then of course the whole debacle at the end with the running on the green. Were you there when that happened and Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, I was I was very much part of that, trying to trying to usher the um, <laughs> the American team off off the green so that Ollie could line up his putt and hopefully hole it. But I was yes, there was it was a bit of a melee. There's no doubt about that. But uh, you know, this it's long gone now. Yeah, and, of course, yes. uh, story 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 is well written and and friendship, friendships renewed. But uh, again, it just shows you the incredible passion and, and electricity associated mm. with. With golf and and with you know with team golf with that Ryder Cup is it getting to dangerous levels, Andrew? We've seen some crowd behaviour even at the President's Cup last year in New York, which was less than you would like at any sporting yeah. event, let alone golf. I mean, it's not dangerous, is it? I mean, it's real. It's just not. It's not what we're used to on a, on a golf course. But and again, I go back to I think that's because golf, and particularly those team events, are reaching out to a much a much broader audience. Mm. Uh, you know, all you got to do is go to certain other sports grounds and and hear some of the language and the vitriol that, that gets that gets thrown about around there. And these boys, these boys, just it's just part and parcel of their daily routine. So. I think in some instances we've just got to try and, uh, you know, get a bit of a thicker neck to it and, and just try and ignore it. Harden up. Uh, harden up. There's a thousand. Sorry, Clates. Yeah. Sorry, did you have a pick for Paris this year? What? You, what you, <laughs> is that a serious question, Clates? So you're, you're saying what, what Europe or America? Is that yeah. what you're saying, Clates? Well, well uh, you have a clue about how you think it'll play out. I mean, I know, I assume you've read it. Alan Shipnup's prediction that the Americans are going to slaughter the Europeans, but <laughs> well, yeah, well that, that was that was just that, that was just after the euphoria of the president's cup. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, um, yeah, I have a well, I, I have a prediction. Uh, I, I think I, I don't know the numbers, but I think the the European team are going to win. I think uh, we were there for the French Open, obviously a few weeks ago. Uh, the golf course is incredibly well set out. A bit fair bit of thoughts going into it. You, you've played there, yeah, played, a lot, you? yeah, 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 I've played there yeah, a lot, yeah. yeah. Fantastic golf course. Um, basically, you know, a, a lot of thought has gone into, you know, the ability of the Americans as drivers of the golf ball, long and straight and accurate, powerful. Um, there's a lot of rough, and there's only really about three or four holes that that driver would be the play off the tee. So, of course, as as is their right as a as a, as a home player, that the captain has, has has tried to set the golf course up to to negate that advantage that the Americans might have. So. Uh, I think I think that will definitely be a plus for the Europeans. Mm. It'll be closer than a lot of people perhaps have thought thought twelve months ago, won't it? The European players have really yeah, come to the fore absolutely. the last twelve months. There was a case to perhaps be made twelve months ago that it could have looked like a walkover, but that's not the case anymore. I don't think that's. Uh, but yeah, it certainly started early with Shipnuck, didn't it? He, um, I don't think he's ever had a column so well read. The greatest thing that ever happened was that. The Europeans got stuck into him over that. He's the world's most popular golf writer now, based almost entirely on that one. Yeah. one what are you uh, going to borrow from John Ogden? 
apart from <laughs> well, John Huggan, which is the last thing I, t- I did want to ask you about this. Clates, were you surprised by the, the blowback that, that Huggy got? I was on Twitter and he was copying it from all sides. Oh, all he ever writes is negative stuff and, you know, he's talking the game down and that's not good for the – it was quite remarkable. I mean, we get accused of some of that on State of the Game too, I suppose. But were you surprised? But Surely it's not a healthy state of affairs if you can't say anything about the deficiencies of the game that do no, exist. No, he's being a proper journalist. Yeah. I mean, Huggy's job is not to be a cheerleader. No. His job is to be a journalist. He's a journalist. He's, his job is to write stuff that's thought-provoking and you know, interesting. and Presents facts, his view which of it the, did. You know, the, the, the state of everything. So to say, well, he's, you know, he's, only, he's only ever negative. Well, he's, he's a journalist who's writing what he should be writing. Yeah. And as I said, his job is not to be a cheerleader. No, exactly right. Andrew, did you see much of that blowback? Were you at all surprised by uh, no, I was. I guess I, I don't really sort of uh, pay much attention to that. Uh, Thank you. I'm aware that, that, that I'm aware that Huggy does see uh, does get his fair bit of criticism. Um, you know, and uh, but I, you know, I agree with what Mike says. You know, you know his job. You know, his job is, is not to agree with it. His job is to put over a you know a, a separate point of view that, that a lot of people may have. I'm finding it really really interesting that, uh, that that people struggle to accept that other people have a different point of view nowadays. But again, that, that, that's another thing entirely. Yeah. Indeed it is. Let's leave it there. Andrew Cotter, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I recall you winning. I was there when you won the Australian PGA in 1997. <laughs> it was fantastic. And I recall you being a particularly noble and a, a worthy winner. And I remember thinking to myself, well, it'll be good to have him out there running around the world as the Australian PGA champion. So, mate, um, thank you for having a chat today. Really enjoyed it. Really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure, Rob. Thanks very much for having us. Cheers, Rob. Not right. at all. And, uh, Clates, to you, as always, it's always great to chat with you. I do a bit more chatting with you than I do with Andrew. But great to chat to you today and get your input on all of those issues. Thanks, mate. Enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. That's episode 80 of State of the Game in the books. Went a bit longer than we meant to, but that's always bound to happen when you start talking about golf. Uh, We'll look forward to your company again next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.